Welcome to the Free Willing Diplomat Podcast. My name is Colin Cleary, and I am the Free Willing Diplomat, a veteran, former U.S. Foreign Service officer who served in Ukraine and Russia. This podcast takes a look at key issues involving Russia's outrageous and barbaric invasion of Ukraine from the perspective of a U.S. diplomatic practitioner. Today's topic is energy, specifically energy sanctions against Russia. After all, it is energy revenue that fuels Putin's war machine. So we'll take a look at U.S. energy diplomacy regarding Russia, past, present, and future. To that end, I'll be joined by my former colleague, Ben Schmidt. Ben is a true polymath. A Ph.D. in astrophysics, he is currently a research fellow at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. But Ben is also keenly knowledgeable in European energy security. I know Ben from 2018 and 2019 when we both worked at the State Department's Energy Bureau. I was office director and Ben was an energy advisor. A main focus for us at the time was the drama surrounding the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline linking Russia and Germany. It helps that Ben is a German speaker and a German expert because we're going to be exploring how Germany got into this mess and how they consciously increased their dependency on Russia, even in the wake of Russia's outrageous invasion of Ukraine in 2014. We'll talk about Schroederization and the co-optation of German elites and take a look at the legacy of Angela Merkel and the failure of her concept of change through trade. This policy completely failed to moderate Putin and, in fact, likely emboldened him to be more aggressive. We'll also take a look at U.S. sanctions, particularly the congressionally mandated sanctions. We'll discuss how Congress passed discretionary sanctions targeting the Nord Stream 2 pipeline in 2017. Unfortunately, the Trump administration failed to act on these discretionary sanctions until they were made mandatory three years later. By that time, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline had gone from zero construction to 95% complete. Ben and I will discuss Europe's progress in weaning itself off from Russian oil and gas. And we'll also take a look at the big problem of alternative markets for Russian oil, particularly in China and India. We'll note that there have been successes in U.S. energy diplomacy in recent years in Europe, especially in the area of diversification. We'll also note the fact that some positive aspects of sanctions against Russia and energy are not evident now, but will be kicking in. Export restrictions mean that Russia's energy sector will be starved of needed technology, and the withdrawal of energy majors like BP and Exxon will be devastating ultimately to the Russian energy sector. Europe's disengagement from Russian oil and gas supplies by the end of 2022 is a huge change. Putin will lose not only his most lucrative market, but also his ability to blackmail Europe. So there's a lot of work to be done on energy diplomacy to rein Putin in. Strategic patience is called for. The impact of the sanctions, evident now, will grow and grow over the coming month. So now on to my conversation with Ben Schmidt. All right, Ben, thank you for joining me on this podcast. I really appreciate your uh, willingness to come on. Thanks, Colin. I'm glad to be on uh, one of the early episodes of the the Cleary cast, as everyone's calling it out uh, in in the podcast world. So it's uh, great you're doing this and uh, excited to be on and uh, chat about the latest. Well, thank you. And what I wanted to do, Ben, was just tap into your deep knowledge of, of Germany. I know that you're a German speaker and spent a lot of time there and have uh, devoted a lot of effort to understanding the mentality that got us into this energy mess with uh, that made Germany so vulnerable. So I wonder if you might just outline at the outset a bit of history and understand this some of the attitudes. I think you've called it the reference to the new Ostpolitik or some of the attitudes in Germany that led to their dependency despite the 2014 uh 
annexation of Crimea that should have woken everybody up as to the dangers of over-reliance on Russia. So can you give us a little history on the mentality? What, what were the Germans thinking that got them so dependent on uh, Russian energy? Well, Colin, that's a great question. And this goes back to the Soviet era, you know, to, to start, where you had um, Willy Brandt's uh, original Ostpolitik and then the energy deals uh, that went on in the, you know, mid to late Soviet era where, where you know, Germany was building pipelines and, uh, you know, basically having these, you know, these deals to uh, get uh, Russian energy resources in exchange for, um, tech, you know, technologies effectively to, uh, to build these systems. That, you know, that obviously built up, um, you know, throughout the, uh, you know, late 70s, early 80s. Um, there was a lot of back and forth and um, consternation in Washington and in that era, certainly during the Reagan administration on that front. But, you know, we're seeing kind of history play out, you know, more more directly over the past 20 years where, you know, we're, we're in a different you know, a different era with a, a much different Russia. And, you know, you have this situation where kind of the the beginning of, of this, um, you know, Russia's uh, energy weaponization, or at least the seeds of it, were planted back in the early 2000s when um, what was then known as the North European Gas Pipeline, which became known ultimately as Nord Stream 1, was first uh, announced um, and, and proposed. And, and actually that was not originally meant to be a Russia to Germany pipeline, but rather a Russia to the United Kingdom pipeline. And and ultimately, you know, even in the early days of the Putin um, regime, you know, the UK, Tony Blair, et cetera, uh, basically saw, you know, the, the strategic vulnerability um, of relying and cooperating with this regime at that level, and they decided not to go along with this. And so in steps, uh, former German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder, who was um, Chancellor at the time, and at the end of 2005, he approved uh, the Nord Stream 1 pipeline and stepped out of office and basically, within a few weeks, was chairman of the shareholders committee of uh, Nord Stream 1, you know, Nord Stream AG. Uh, and this basically set off uh, a tradition over the, the following 17, 18, 19 years of former senior officials in Europe leaving the public trust and taking roles at Russian state-owned enterprises, right, of, of one, one type or another. And we've seen this, uh, especially in the past several years, where you have uh, former Austrian Chancellor Christian Kern, who penned a, uh, a letter decrying U.S. Uh, sanctions through the counter America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act, or CATSA, uh, with then uh, German... Vice Chancellor Zygmar Gabriel, you know, basically having these pro Nord Stream positions. That was, of course, for Nord Stream Two, stepping out of office, and uh, and Karen then took a position on the board of Russian Railways. Former Austrian Foreign Minister Karen Tanaisel, uh, who famously invited Putin to her wedding and, and danced with him at, at her wedding, you know, stepped out of office. First, uh, wrote a number of pieces for Russian state-owned propaganda network RT, and then ultimately last year was nominated to the board of Russian state-owned oil company Rosneft. Uh, you have former French uh, uh, Prime Minister Francois Fillon that was nominated to not one but two uh, Russian state-owned oil and gas trading firms. So the list goes on and on. And the concern there, obviously, is that this sort of, you know, what, what is known now as Schroederization, because Schroeder started this 
this this habit um, that this undermines the public trust and and you know the the foreign policy decision making could be undermined um, if this continues and that's why I've called uh, a number of times for for shame and you know we we know that lowercase shame hasn't worked with a lot of these officials not to take these positions so we're calling for uppercase shame to stop helping uh, America's uh, malign enemies act to basically allow the United States to take a role you know Congress to take a role in starting to set the norm setting process obviously you know outlawing this in the United States would you know would basically set a precedent for our European partners and allies and other global democracies to actually step in and, and start you know taking this seriously but it, it's really needed right now because even in the past few weeks you have uh, the SPD in Germany coming out and refusing calls to um, basically kick Schroeder out of the party for his uh, his ties to the Putin regime and just this morning Gerhard Schroeder is I guess uh, buoyed by that um, that uh, support from his own party that he's now going to um, sue the uh, the Bundestag itself to try to get back um, the office and staff that was uh, was taken away from him earlier this year for those same roles. So again, th these are these are the sort of things that undermine democratic resilience if they're not addressed. And it's it's really you know it's an energy issue because energy is so central you know with the amount of money that's around it to authoritarian nations' ability like Russia to weaponize energy and use it for strategic corruption. It's not necessarily illegal in these jurisdictions, and in fact it's not, to take these roles. And although some of these folks have resigned uh, since the onset of Russia's legal war of aggression against Ukraine, you know, there there's no actual law stopping this um, across the EU. Um, and that's a problem because, you know, you have a lot of folks that, that you know, don't want to have a Zeitenwende, as I, I think we're going to talk about, and, and want to return to business as usual as soon as possible. Uh, and that's why you need to have these uh, norm setting uh, take place now where, where there's a lot of uh, public interest in these issues. Well, absolutely. I mean, as, as you've said, Schroeder is infamous, but uh, Angela Merkel is still widely regarded in a positive way, yet her time also exhibited that notion that was called change through trade. You can you can probably give me that in German. But the idea Vandal being that, Handel. Vandal thank you. Handel. The idea being to, you know, that it's better we need to engage Putin or, you know, make him give him a stake in the economic relationship and that will somehow moderate his behavior. Of course that has come back to bite. And I wonder how that looks how you how you regard Merkel's legacy in light of that uh, today. I think Merkel is, you know, has a, a major hit on her legacy because of of these sort of decisions. And it's actually kind of funny that, you know, you had not only Gerhard Schroeder coming out, who obviously, you know, is even still on the board of uh, Nord Stream 1 AG, you know, majority owned by Kremlin-controlled Gazprom, uh, coming out and saying, he doesn't do mea culpas, you know, what, what do I have to apologize for? Kind of this uh, Alfred E. Newman sort of, uh, um, Spiegel uh, cover, you know, what, you know, what me worry, you know, about uh, strategic corruption and, uh, and Russian energy weaponization. Well, you know, we expect that from someone like Schroeder. We, we expect, you know, from her reputation that uh, Merkel might come out and, and actually talk about this in a little more detail and, and understand and point out where, where mistakes were made. But unfortunately, in the two interviews that, that um, at least I've seen uh, thus far, she really kind of declines to apologize um, and pointed out that even though they knew, um, you know, she knew that um, 
this notion of Vondel der Handel or change through trade, this idea that somehow, you know, by by engaging authoritarian nations like Russia over the years through economic deals and cooperation, you would ultimately have Western liberal democratic norms uh, and, and policies and, and, you know, market democracy structures built in, in those, um, you know, displace the authoritarian, um, you know, kleptocratic nature of those regimes. It's really gone the other way, right? You've seen strategic corruption flow downwards um, into the West. And we're, we're, you know, unfortunately, our societies, to some extent, look more authoritarian and kleptocratic than the other way around. And so it's funny because, you know, that's kind of this... This idea that the, especially you know, the the German SPD party, but but a lot of the German foreign policy establishment has has clung to this uh, Willy Brandt idea of Ostpolitik, which you know came out again in in the early two thousands and you know over the past uh, you know decade or so, this idea of Neue Ostpolitik that we will continue to engage Russia so that it will change in this way. You know that that's been problematic. It's never been proven true. It is, there's been never any tangible evidence that any of these deals have done anything to change, uh, you know, Putin's mindset, let alone, you know, Russian kleptocratic society, you know, more broadly. And, and we've seen, if anything, the Russian Federation become more authoritarian and less democratic over the past 20 years uh, than anything going the other direction. So this idea of change through trade, yeah, okay, so there's been a whole lot of of handel or trade without much vondel or, or or change going on in terms of moving in the right direction by by the putin regime and you know merkel even came out and said well we knew this we knew this wasn't really going to change them this idea of you know this pipeline nord stream 2 that was announced you know in the aftermath of uh, of putin's initial invasion of eastern ukraine the donbass region and illegal annexation of crimea uh, and the idea that this was put on hold for, you know, effectively one year in, in 2015 uh, was was resurrected right away um, really gave, I would say, the Kremlin all the confidence in the world that their weaponization of energy and their, um, you know, their, their authoritarian aggression against a democratic state in Ukraine wouldn't be pushed back on that much because of the extent that, uh, you know, Western European politicians really wanted to press for these deals. Um, and so this is a major, major issue. And, you know, for Merkel to come out and say that, you know, we knew that this wasn't going to work, but we did it anyways. I think that speaks the world, you know, to, you know, anyone, any future historian that's trying to assess her legacy. You know, it's 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 really problematic. She did certainly a lot of great things and was a major, you know, democratic leader on the world stage for 16 years. But this was a strategic blunder that not just her, but the entire German foreign policy establishment pushed for. And, and right now we're seeing the fruits of that. Uh, with all of the, um, you know, concerns about uh, economic recession in Germany and um, industrial capacity being shut down and things like this because of the energy cuts and the weaponization of that vulnerability that, that Germany built in, you know, intentionally over the years. And it's not as if they weren't warned. I mean, regional players like Poland and Lithuania were vociferous in warning exactly of the, the things that you've outlined. But the Germans Absolutely. ignored I thought I'd also touch, um, Ben, on U.S. policy, you know, at that time, because, of course, the U.S. US position formally was also opposed to, Nord, if we want to talk about Nord Stream 2, which is, the, which is particularly egregious because it occurred, as you just noted, in the, in the wake of the annexation of Crimea and the fomenting of this war in the Donbass region. And um, 
I will just note, you know, U.S. policy was uh, publicly opposed to it. And in 2017, in the, in the wake of the, uh, the election interference by Russia and, and other acti- malign activities, Congress passed a comprehensive sanctions menu, called, which is under the term Katza, which basically had many provisions for potential sanctions, including in the Russian uh, energy export sector, which uh, gave the administration latitude to really kind of go after this. And that was in 2017. Unfortunately, the Secretary of State at the time, Mr. Tillerson, grandfathered in the Nord Stream 2, the pre-existing projects, which included Nord Stream 2. So at that point, for at least until that grandfathering was reversed, the project was not sanctionable. And that remained in effect for several years, during the course of which the Nord Stream 2 project went from zero construction to 95% completed. And in December of 2019, however, Congress got much more uh, prescriptive and things changed. And I wonder if you could take us from there and talk about what happened and how Congress's activity affected the, uh, the Nord Stream 2's trajectory at that point. Well, you know, Colin, that's, that's great that you brought that up. And I, I want to say, I, I really think that if, if there's any lessons that we take away from this, we, we really need to be clear throughout that entire time. Congress has been consistently right with its sanctions policies to limit Russian malign energy influence over the years. And it's particularly true when it comes to measures that they implemented to stop uh, the Kremlin-backed Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Um, and that includes those discretionary sanctions. They were not mandatory at the time of the, uh, you know, included in the 2017 Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act, or CATSA. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, the, the 2020 and 2021 National Defense Authorization Act sanctions that we saw mandatory technology calibrated sanctions that were um, included to make sure that this project, Nord Stream 2, could not be physically completed. Um, and they were they were successful. I mean, let, let's face it. You know, the the um, the NDAA sanctions that were passed in 2019 were you know as as far as uh, you know the analyst community, the expert community, whatever you want to call it, was concerned. These these were kind of pinprick sanctions, right? This was against a specific class of vessel uh, that had the capability of uh, of, of deploying uh, pipe of the scale of Nord Stream two. Um, and uh, it resulted in you know, basically 15 minutes before uh, the uh, the, um, uh, the 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 law was was you know was basically confirmed signed into law the legislation was signed into law um, there was an announcement by uh, the Swiss based geo um, you know, geotechnical uh, maritime uh, engineering firm Balsies to stop, that they were basically going to stop their vessel, the Pioneering Spirit, from continuing construction of Nord Stream 2. And so in real time, I I remember sitting there and watching on uh, marinetraffic.com that vessel slow to a stop in real time, and then over the next 12 hours, sail away. And it sailed off, you know, through the Danish Straits to the North Sea, and it, you know, never to be seen again with relation to Nord Stream 2. And then that project then sat fallow for, um, you know, for over a year. And so, you know, the idea that sanctions can't have an impact, you know, clearly not true. You know, there's a lot of 
um, you know, the policy community, you know, in transatlantic debates on Nord Stream 2 at the time that were saying, even back uh, with the original sanctions uh, from, from CATSA in 2017, that, you know, sanctions can't stop Nord Stream 2. Uh, the third energy package uh, can't stop Nord Stream 2. And, and all of the sort of things that the West can't do uh, to stop Russia's uh, premier malign influence project. And guess what? Um, and Colin, you and I know this. The sanctions ultimately, along with the third energy package, stopped Nord Stream 2 within, you know, 24 hours of uh, Russia's um, renewed aggression against uh, Ukraine taking place at the end of February. You saw the German government finally, uh, you know, after, you know, years and years begrudgingly sticking and clinging to this geostrategic anchor, which which was this Nord Stream 2 project. You know, they they finally went back in. And uh, under EU law, uh, updated their assessment under Article 11 of the gas directive of the third energy package, this market liberalization package that the EU had passed years before, saying that this project does harm the energy security of Germany and, uh, you know, adjacent member states in the union as a whole. And that lack of certification because of that assessment means that the project could not come online. And following that up, the Biden administration fully deployed sanctions uh, against uh, Nord Stream 2 uh, AG and all of the corporate officers uh, of that of that company. It includes their CEO, uh, former um, uh, Stasi officer, and uh, an alleged Putin crony and um, uh, Putin connected uh, individual, uh, Matthias Vanek. And so he was sanctioned as well. Uh, the project came to a halt, and um, you know, within uh, just a few days of that happening, there were reports coming out that Nord Stream Two had, uh, you know, filed for bankruptcy uh, or, or you know, effectively, you know, ended operations. Uh, they they liquidated the entire company and fired all you know 110 remaining employees. Now, of course, Nord Stream Two has come out. Uh, or, or at least gas farmers cut out, come out and um, claim that the you know the project is not completely over, and you know there's questions about the uh, extent to which it actually applied for bankruptcy versus liquidating uh, its its assets and things like this. So it's I don't think we're at the end of the Nord Stream two saga, especially with Putin coming out and saying that the current gas prices in Europe can only be solved somehow uh, with uh, the operationalization of Nord Stream two. To say nothing the fact that. Nord Stream 1 is being currently throttled by 80% uh, because of a, uh, you know, a, a, a political decision by the Kremlin to, um, you know, lay on the hurt uh, in terms of energy against Europe for its support of Ukraine. So we really need to remember that going forward, that Nord Stream 2 is not just a commercial deal. It is certainly not the answer uh, to what ails Europe right now with respect to its energy security. And should it ever come online, it will only increase you know, European and transatlantic vulnerability to Russian energy weaponization going forward. That's why it needs to remain uh, stopped uh, for good. Right, Ben. I, I totally agree that this case does show the, that the sanctions were, tar the targeted sanctions were quite effective in stopping the project. My point is just it's, it's a lamentable that three years transpired between the 2017 Katsa and the actual use of this tool. And that in the meantime, the, the project was built. So I think that was, we've learned in hindsight that it is doable and that it should have been done and three years were lost. So that's unfortunate. But anyway, the, the result of what you've described is that by the, by the, on the eve of the uh, invasion of Ukraine in February, 
Europe itself was was relying on Russia for 40% of its gas, Germany about 50%, you know, the oil dependency of Germany and others, you know, varied, but in Germany's case is 30 to 35%. So an extremely high reliance on Russian oil and gas. I mean, Germany, of course, was the number one consumer of, of uh, Russian oil. So we have, as you've just, as you've noted, the uh, invasion on the 24th and Chancellor Schultz uh, coins, at least coins to me, a new word. And what is that word he described his new kind of watershed or the change? It's, uh, it's a Zeitenwende, the Zeitenwende. Uh, time of change or, yeah. or inflection so point. Basically. I wondered if you could, you know, so is this, how do you evaluate now, whatever it is now, five or six months on the Zeitenwende? And, and is it as much of a change as touted by uh, Chancellor Schultz? Well, I, I think that there have been certainly tangible elements that, that indicate that there is a change going on. Um, but you have to remember that Germany has entrenched um, uh, industrial interests in particular that really rely on or built up their, their business model on um, the promise of, quote unquote, cheap Russian energy. Um, and we, of course, know that you know, Russian energy is not cheap, given that the reliance on it is a strategic national security concern. And, um, you know, these, these folks, I don't know if they, they ever really contemplated Russia using energy as a weapon to this extent as they had everywhere else across the continent through, you know, dozens of gas cutoffs to various countries, including the Ukraine, etc. Um, but, um, you know, this has happened. And, you know, you've seen, you know, CEOs come out and you've seen these companies come out and kind of start to, um, you know, to to say that, that yeah, that there there has to be a realignment on uh, strategy uh, in terms of, of reliance on, on Russian energy. But then again, you also have these long term, you know, quote unquote, business relations, you know, between the German um, industrial sector, you know, uh, uh, and and um, you know economic sector and Russian energy. That it's going to take time for that to really fully realign. And so I think we've seen that over the past six months or so. Germany certainly has provided um, you know some weapons to Ukraine. That is a change, purportedly, of their their long term policy of not. Uh, providing weapon systems to war zones, but they've done so really begrudgingly, and it's taken uh, a lot of um, you know basically public outcry each time that there is a promise, and then that you know some sort of excuse coming out of uh, the German government of why these weapon systems are delayed or can't be done, you know things like this, um, and the same thing for energy, you know why um, you know why can't Germany more rapidly uh, realign its energy system. Um, to, uh, to to push back on Russian energy weaponization. I think there's progress being made, but there's a lot that can be done. And, you know, we can talk about that, but it's it's certainly, um, you know, the, I would say that the jury, is, the jury is out when it comes to the Zeitung whether or not this is actually going to be a watershed moment in the long term or not. Certainly right now, um, there are indications that it could be, but there are a lot of, um, you know, shadows of previous German-Russia policy uh, that haven't been moved past. And there's this, you know, kind of notion that, you know, if there were a ceasefire tomorrow, I think there are some in the German, you know, political class and uh, business class that might want a return to business as usual. And I think that that would be a, a massive, massive strategic mistake by, by Europe's largest economy.
So let's broaden it a bit and talk about the EU. I mean, they've issued some very uh, extensive plans for reducing their reliance, the, the, the European Union's reliance on Russian oil and gas. Two-thirds of Russian gas by the end of, this, of the year and up to 90% of Russian oil is the goal. So that's very significant. The problem is, of course, especially in the case of oil, that it's the commodities are fungible. And Russia is now selling, as you know, the oil uh, at, at greater levels to China and India and even NATO ally Turkey. So the question really is, we'll get, I want to drill into, if, which is, are sanctions working? And there are two, two notions here, two predicates anyway. The first is that the sanctions haven't, at least in the near term, changed Putin's behavior. He's still relentlessly bombing, destroying, attacking, uh, committing atrocities in Ukraine and has no immediate end in sight to this. And secondly, unfortunately, because of these alternative markets, he has more, actually more money. So the, sadly, despite the success of Europe dropping this year uh, in its uh, consumption, the alternative consumers are yielding actually greater revenue given the price rise that has occurred thanks to Putin's own war. So he's actually benefiting from greater revenue. So this is perverse. And that's the problem. So sanctions are working in a sense that Europe is driving down its demand. Uh, but on the global level, are sanctions working? So that's the question for you, Ben. I mean, I think that there have been a number of um, reports that have come out that have pushed back on this notion that sanctions are not working. There was a report by a group of Yale University economists, and I'll just quote here, they said, you know, that these are working, right? Quote, looking ahead, there is no path out of economic oblivion for Russia as long as the allied countries remain unified in maintaining and increasing sanctions pressure. Quote, defeatist headlines arguing that Russia's economy has bounced back are simply not factual. Now, look, I, I think that that is um, largely true. Um, and, you know, basically ever since the Kremlin unleashed its um, campaign of chaos in Ukraine, the world's democracies have worked to increase sanctions pressure on the Putin regime uh, to end this criminal aggression. And we've seen financial and banking restric restrictions that have led Russia to default in its foreign debt, um, arguably for the first time, at least in decades, or, or possibly even back to the Bolshevik Revolution, depending on uh, what metrics you, you go by. Well, energy export sanctions aimed at depriving the Kremlin of profits from hydrocarbon sales continue to be announced. But they're, they're not, you know... They have not yet been rolled out at the, um, I think, the, the level or with the intention uh, that um, that is necessary to get us to a point where you're really, you know, throttling that ability um, of, of the Putin regime to make those profits and, and use that to fund its war machine. Um, and, and part of the reason for that is exactly what you're saying, right? They, they've, you know, Russia has taken fungible resources and sold them, albeit at a discount, right, uh, to other uh, nations that are, are not really central to the, uh, at least the transatlantic sanctions regime uh, that's been developed over the past six months. And so, you know, we saw uh, basically on February 24th, or maybe within, you know, the 48-hour period beforehand, the Russian Ural's crude grade price plummet precipitously, you know, very, very rapidly with respect to the global um Brent price, the uh, the oil benchmark that's really baked into global economic uh, considerations. And so that basically dropped for a few weeks, and it has kind of stabilized at around $30, maybe $35 less than uh, the Brent price. And so that means that every barrel of oil that 
Russia continues to sell, um, whether it be to China or India or, or, or the other uh, countries that have stepped up to offtake these volumes, they are selling it at a discount. So, um, you know, it's, but that doesn't mean they're not making a lot of money from this in, in real time. And they, they certainly are. So this is why we really need to think about, you know, alternative mechanisms, whether it's price cap, whether it's setting up escrow accounts um, and, and having global buy-in so that uh, Russia can't at least immediately cash in from its oil sales because unlike natural gas, oil is is quite fungible, right? So um, this notion that it's you know that oil and gas are kind of the same sort of thing, and um, if uh, if you stop importing Russian oil, they'll sell it elsewhere, and if you stop uh, you know importing Russian gas, they'll sell it elsewhere. It's much easier for Russia because of the fungibility of oil to sell this uh, product uh, to other other countries and regions around the world, whereas for natural gas, they've really built into their system, Russia has over the years, a, a strategic reliance on pipeline infrastructure to physically bring natural gas uh, from the Russian Federation to points across Europe through basically Nord Stream, you know, the Nord Stream set of pipelines through the Amal uh, uh, Europe pipeline through Belarus and Poland to, to Germany, through the Ukrainian gas transmission network and through the Turk Street pipelines. So although Russia does have some LNG capability and LNG is, you know, building in some level of fungibility to uh, global natural gas sales, it is, you know, more difficult for Russia to pivot away. You know, they built this pipeline, the Power Siberia pipeline to, uh, to China in Russia's Far East. But, you know, building another one of those will take decades you know, or at least a, a decade or so, given uh, how long it took to build the first one. And, uh, you know, it's not clear that, that, that China actually wants that. So, you know, we have to look at, you know, the breakdown. So natural gas sales account for about 20% of hydrocarbon revenues, whereas uh, oil is about 80%. So there's, you know, kind of an outsized role um, that, that oil plays. Um, and so over the years, there's been this rule of thumb that Russia uses uh, its oil resources for state funding, you know, for its for its economic gain, and um, natural gas for you know political pressure and you know strategic uh, maneuvering vis-a-vis -vis Europe, uh, and that's what it's been doing, Colin. It's been doing this, um, you know, very uh, outwardly for the past two months. Where at the start of this in uh, in in May, you saw uh, Poland and Belarus first getting cut off from Russian gas. And since then, you've seen countries from Finland and the Netherlands to Germany, France, uh, and Italy, to say nothing of the Baltic states and, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the Visegrad uh, countries, at least uh, the Czech Republic and, and Slovakia, getting cut off as well, either partially or, or fully. And, and that has really shown in, in stark relief the differences in how prepared various countries and regions have been over the years to... Be, be ready to push back on Russian energy weaponization. Poland, for example, right, over the years, and you and I worked on this when we were at the State Department, supporting European energy diversification infrastructure, right, that was central to the 2015 European Energy Union framework, basically this, this energy union framework that, that Brussels put forward to help European countries build out the hardware and software of energy security, hardware being the projects, the actual diversification and import infrastructure, whereas at the same time, they're building out anti-monopoly regulations and, um, you know, the third energy package, for example, to continue building out those uh, legislative norms and, and, and laws to push back on monopolization and, uh, you know, the... Uh, 
the practices that that Gazprom in particular had uh, taken across the European continent. So that's what I kind of call the software of energy security. So Poland, for example, um, over the years has built up the Szczytnowiska LNG terminal, the gas interconnector Poland-Lithuania, uh, the uh, Baltic pipe project, which should come online in the next few months, that will bring gas uh, from um, from the Norwegian offshore through Denmark, uh, through the Baltic Sea to Poland for the first time uh, in, in history to kind of break that east-west axis and have a more north-south axis uh, and, um, and and a number of other projects. You know, you have Greece uh, that, uh, that, you know, supporting Bulgaria has built the gas interconnector Greece-Bulgaria, IGB. Um, so that was a, a long-term energy security and energy diplomacy project that came online last month. Uh, that helps uh, Bulgaria, as it was cut off from from uh, Russian natural gas, to to deal with that, right? And you know, and you know, additional projects including the the Alexandropolis LNG terminal um, south of of where IGB sits, as well as increasing the natural gas capacity at the Rebuthusa terminal near Athens through the uh, the Despa gas transmission network in Greece and up to Bulgaria as well. So. All of this, you know, regional work that was going on across Central and Eastern Europe has helped these countries be more resilient. Whereas at the same time, and you know, you and I can, uh, you know, keep looking at the records to find, you know, I'm trying to find this project to to prove me wrong. But I believe that during that period of time, uh, that you know, 2015 until now period of time, Germany effectively uh, took zero steps to uh, diversify its energy dependency on Russia, and if anything. Uh, work to solidify that infrastructure dependency, uh, to say nothing of the the actual resource dependency, through its pursuit of Nord Stream 2. There were no interconnector projects and LNG terminals and all of these sort of things that were baked into you know Europe's uh, broader energy security framework that um, Germany actually did. Now that's changing, you know, and and we've seen uh, the the um, you know Minister Habeck, uh, Robert Habeck, the Green. You know, econ minister and vice chancellor come out and uh, and push for the fast tracking of LNG terminals at Brunsbüttel and Wilhelmshaven, uh, Germany on the on the North Sea. And you know, we've seen um, early signs that the uh, at least the econ ministry in Berlin is is considering and pushing what I've been long calling for, including when I uh, testified before Congress in June, um, which is to try to fast track a lot of these projects with a wartime level of effort, meaning like the, the um, you know, the amount of red tape and the, the amount of, of, of infrastructure uh, investment is, is fast tracked to the greatest extent possible, but also doing this, you know, with a, a technical backing in terms of infrastructure development, meaning that you want to take advantage of existing infrastructure that's already been built. And so that means that, um, for example, Nord Stream 2, which is not operating because of uh, the lack of certification from Germany and the sanctions from the Biden administration, should be expropriated by uh, the German government, um, at least the, the portion that is in German waters. It should be physically cut apart from the rest of Nord Stream 2's uh, uh, pipeline system and instead plugged into floating storage and regasification units, right? These, these LNG import terminals. And that would allow uh, not for the same volume, not not for as large a volume of LNG to be brought into Germany to replace the volumes that are, are coming in or, or would, would have been coming in through Nord Stream 2, but rather uh, to 
utilize that infrastructure, both the offshore and the onshore infrastructure at Lubin, Germany, and then onward through the Oigal pipeline system that's been built uh, to help, uh, um, you know, uh, allay those um, energy security vulnerabilities uh, that are, are both regional and, and national issues for Germany. So th those are the sort of things that I think that we need to be seeing uh, in the next few months, um, you know, as, as soon as possible take place. But um, it also means that Germany is going to have to take a hard look at um, making sure that the rest of uh, the energy storage facilities around Germany and in you know countries across Western Europe, you know, more generally, need to expropriate or nationalize or end the ownership of these facilities by Russian state enterprises. And so that's that's got to end as well because in the run up to this war. Uh, in, in early 2022, um, throughout 2021, Colin, you and I watched this happen in real time. We had seen Russia intentionally weaponize energy and create gas scarcity by declining to take normal market action to inject natural gas volumes uh, into the gas storage facilities that Russian state owned enterprises own across Western Europe that created gas scarcity that such that in February 2022, there was already a gas crisis in Europe, um, and the hope by the Putin regime was to do that in order to limit the foreign policy latitude and the national security latitude of European countries to respond to Russia's aggression in Ukraine. Thankfully, uh, that that wasn't um, enough to deter uh, from from supporting Ukraine um, uh, these these European nations. But at the same time, you see these gas cutoffs that are kind of uh, you know turbocharging that energy weaponization um, with a dozen you know, countries cut off from, from Russian natural gas. So this is why these sort, of, uh, these sort of steps need to be taken as soon as possible. No, Ben, I just want to second what you said about the supply side. I mean, I was there too where the Germans used to promise that they would be building, you know, to kind of appease the Americans' uh, LNG terminals, but they never did it. And here they are now caught flat-footed. So you can even have supplies, but if you don't have the terminals, that doesn't really do you any uh, do you any good, at least in the near or medium term. So the supply side is is a problem. The but uh, as you say, we need a wartime kind of footing to to ratchet up infrastructure. Some countries like Spain had excess uh, infrastructure and excess LNG facilities. So maybe interconnection between their pre-existing facilities and other solutions. But we. The, there's the supply side of the equation, and then there's also the supply side on the oil, on oil, because this is, as as you note, and we both note, the more fungible of the two. So hey, Colin, we can can we break news here? I mean, France yeah. and Spain announced that they're in, you know, kind of uh, the the final stages of talks just a few hours ago on finally interconnecting the French and Spanish uh, natural gas grids uh, to allow for the Iberian Peninsula and all of the import capacity that it has to finally be used uh, to diversify um, EU energy security more broadly. Uh, that's been a, a strategic uh, problem for many years that, that Spain and Portugal have not really been fully integrated with the rest of the European system. So if that actually moves forward, that will be a tremendous uh, help to uh, weaning uh, Europe off of uh, its strategic vulnerability and its its dependency on Russian energy. Great news, because I know that Spain had in, had had uh, installed extensive capacity, but they were using the LNG uh, capacity at only twenty five percent. So that's an opportunity there. So that's that's excellent. That's excellent news. Just on the supply side too, with oil. I mean, these aren't things that are easy to solve, but just to note that 
Another way to around the oil supply side equation is the diplomacy that the administration is trying to do with the Saudis or potentially an Iran nuclear deal that would free up a couple of million barrels a day of Iranian oil. So there are opportunities there to increase the, if you are going to try to limit the, um, the, the export of Russian oil, but that limitation creates havoc on the global market, if there's some way to alt- provide alternate supply, you know, there may be opportunities there. Thus far, the Saudis haven't done much. Ironically, maybe the Iran nuclear deal might be uh, very helpful. But um, let's go back to the demand side, if you don't mind, because we have, and I, this is this is a conundrum, but, you know, we have major players like China, India, and Turkey consuming a large amount of, of Russian oil and gas in the midst of this horrific crisis. So how do we deal with that on the demand side? Is there any way to do so? And I know that there's a notion of instituting a price cap backed by secondary sanctions, but I don't know how, how viable that is. I know that the question is, can that really be implemented? It's, it sounds good in theory, but uh, what do you make of that? Is there a way to use that mechanism to try to influence, diminish demand from uh, India, China, or Turkey? Yeah, that's a, that's that's the uh, you know that's the million dollar question, Colin, uh, or maybe billions of dollars question. You know, you need to have all of these parties buying into this, uh, either a price cap or uh, you know something that um, you know I've, I've written about with uh, co-authors in the. Um, uh, Ambassador Michael McFall led uh, Stanford University um, International Working Group on Russia sanctions that I've been a part of, you know, to, to have this uh, potential for a special payment mechanism, basically setting up escrow accounts so that that these uh, volumes that are being sold are at least the at least the uh, payments for them are not directly funding uh, the Russian uh, war effort in real time. That's going to be a problem for a few reasons. Number one, you have to all the, get all these other countries involved, and then you have to see if, if Russia will play ball. I think that it's possible they might be forced into that if you actually had this, um, you know, this 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 wall of, of unity around the world, and that includes uh, getting countries like China to buy in. So I, I don't know if that's possible, but the bottom line is Russia has only so much storage capacity, and if it doesn't want to ultimately uh, shut off its wells, whether it be for oil or natural gas. Um, it, it has to play ball on, uh, on on having off takers for these resources, but so far there just hasn't been the global unity that we need to to make that sort of um, sanction a, a possibility. But there really needs to be uh, you know additional sanctions wherever possible, especially on the technology side, uh, to make sure that. Um, Russia, you know, at least is being limited in exporting its natural resources to um, as many countries as possible. And that means that you need to have more sanctions on insurance providers for, uh, you know, on the, the Russian um, energy export shipping sector uh, in, 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 in areas like that, um, that can have a big you know, make a big difference. And so that's why it was so concerning for me to see Germany come out uh, after Russia cut uh, Nord Stream 1's uh, capacity in June down by 60% initially, um, and you know Russia basically coming out with, doing what they always do. They never Russia never comes out, Colin. And, you know, you and I can uh, you know have seen this over the years that they don't they don't come out and say you know we're going to cut off energy through a specific pipeline or um, you know or stop shipping uh, uh, energy to certain locations 
because they don't like a political decision that's being made. They, that is why they're doing it. They're weaponizing energy for geopolitical pressure purposes. Uh, but they always, 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 in their playbook, justify these cuts through pseudo-technical, uh, you know, false technical justifications. And this is exactly what happened, which was that uh, that Russia came out, Gazprom came out and said, well, you know, we, we are cutting Nord Stream 1, and the reason is that we, uh, you know, we need turbines that are under sanctions and they're stuck in Canada. Uh, you know, Siemens uh, uh, Canada is, is working on them. And so we, we basically have cut them, you know, cut this, this resource because of that. And the German government, to its credit, came out right away, um, both uh, Minister Habeck uh, in the Energy Econ Climate Ministry coming out and saying that this was a political pretext and, and not based in reality. You saw the Bundesnetzagentur coming out and saying that there was no correlation between uh, the demands and the, the turbine claims from the Russian side and the cuts that they've been making. Uh, but nevertheless, the German government pressured Canada over a several week period in late June and early July to um, basically undermine or waive sanctions uh, on these turbines to send energy technologies uh, that, that Russia is demanding back to the Russian Federation, even though they knew this was a, a false political pretext. And that sets a really disturbing precedent um, that you know Russia can use energy um, to undermine technology sanctions that are really having a major impact about uh, you know impact on um, on on the Putin regime right now. That that's arguably the most successful area of of Russia sanctions. I'm happy to chat about that a little bit as well. But the the bottom line is that these um, you know this this demand happened. So you know the the Canadians waived sanctions on up to six turbines, the first of which was flown to Germany. And you have this bizarre juxtaposition where the German government is saying that this is, you know, this has been all a, a false uh, pretext by the Russian government, and um, and nevertheless, in the weeks since then, since that turbine got back to Germany, um, the Russians have come up with all sorts of additional, uh, you know, pseudo, you know, false pretextual concerns about the. Uh, the, the, the turbine potentially still being under sanctions, uh, not having the right paperwork, uh, not even sending the location where, um, you know, they, the, uh, the German side could ship this, uh, this unit. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's frankly really, really concerning. And, and you have, uh, you know, Chancellor Schultz coming out, standing physically in front of this turbine and saying that this is a fully operational turbine, we are ready to send it tomorrow, and uh, Russia basically thumbing its nose at Germany. And so, you know, this is this is a lesson that needs to be taken, that, that we can't undermine, we can't basically give in to demands uh, that, that Russia has when it's weaponizing energy to undermine other areas of the sanctions regime that, that have been successful, in that case, uh, technology, energy technology sanctions. So um, that's something to keep in mind as well. I agree, Ben, absolutely. And it is just an observation, very perverse, when when the revenues f to the Putin regime for oil and gas exports actually apparently increased by 50% in 2022 over 2021 levels. That's very sad. And when these the new consumers, the ones who are increasing their consumption, particularly India and China, you know, it's very difficult for various political and other reasons to envision secondary sanctions against their entities. I think your point about hitting the shipping, et cetera, is probably more of a, more of a viable option. But, I, but there is some, if we look medium to longer term, I think there are some positive elements out there, one of which is 
the impact of the exodus of major U.S. and European oil and gas companies from the Russian energy sector and the effect that that will have on that sector over the, perhaps not the immediate term, but the medium term. So that's something that's, I think, positive. How do you, do you agree? Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And that, that really speaks to the technology sanctions um, impacts that I was, I was mentioning before. Russia is highly reliant on, um, you know, finished products and, um, and uh, in, in, you know, uh, high-tech systems from other nations, right? They don't have uh, this well-established, um, you know, entrepreneurial high-tech sector. And, you know, they've been impacted since 2014 with initial technology sanctions that have come down. And then additionally, through further export controls that were implemented at the end of February after their, their um, you know, criminal reinvasion of, of, of Ukraine, uh, at that point, and that includes impacts throughout the energy technology space. Again, that that's going to take a while to have uh, have an impact, but it will have an impact as they uh, begin to um, have trouble uh, maintaining these systems. That's kind of the the you know the early uh, excuses that they're making with these turbines uh, could be in you know you know growing in terms of you know they want to get these systems back uh, so that they um, that they don't have to undermine their own energy production. But I think that is possible uh, in the, the medium term. But we also see this throughout the rest of their, their um, you know, defense technology sector, for example. You know, there's been a lot of anecdotal evidence from, you know, Russian forces in, you know, seeing a lot of this on social media that when they down a Russian drone or have Russian systems that they, uh, that they destroy, when they open these up, they see all sorts of cobbled together Western technologies and semiconductors in particular that were sourced and repurposed from commercial goods. Um, and, and so, you know, you have dishwashers and washing machines and things like this being uh, stripped apart in Russia for their semiconductors and for their electronics and being repurposed, not at military specification for military systems. And that's something that we need to continue to build out. Um, you know, we've seen that Russia um, is really going to be, uh, more and more unable to access 5G equipment and is therefore buying up outdated uh, 4G equipment on the secondary market. Uh, we saw that from a number of reports. Um, we've seen, um, you know, something that I, you know, look at a lot as a, um, you know, from my, uh, you know, science and technology uh, uh, career, that there's going to be impacts on the Russian uh, market by the exit of enterprise software firms like IBM and Microsoft. And productivity software platforms, platforms, whether it be Adobe, Slack, and others, um, that can have the potential to impact the Russian business development sector more broadly. But you know, something that I, I've looked at is the um, inability of Russian firms to access vital security patches and technical support and updates in software uh, for things that they actually directly need to help develop their, their, their tech sector. And that includes the exit of computer-aided design and manufacturing, or CAD-CAM engineering software giants, like Francis Desalt Sustain that makes SolidWorks, uh, the Boston-based PTC, maker of PTC Creo, and Bay Area-based Autodesk, which makes Autodesk Inventor and Autodesk Revit. Um, and that'll have you know strategic impacts to hamper fields ranging from mechanical and electrical engineering design work to computer-integrated manufacturing and building information modeling. And these are all prerequisites for a well-functioning high-tech sector. So that's exactly why, you know, as these sort of... Um, 
tech restrictions are taking place, in, including on the energy sector, there really can't be a um, you know a given moment from global democracies where you know Russia weaponizes another area of its uh, you know its economy or its um, its, its exports uh, to you know undermine these successful tech sanctions you know going forward. And again, they need to be built out. There's a lot of loopholes and there's a lot of leakiness, uh, as some reports have said in the um you know in the export controls regime but that's exactly why we need to stick with it and, and build it out because that's going to really undermine the physical capability of russia to continue its war of aggression against ukraine no right i mean this this notion of uh dishwasher chips being used for military purposes is uh i don't know who that's more it's probably pretty scary from the russian military perspective launching any such uh equipment but there's another positive that i do see just because there is you know, there's some mixed mixed picture here, but the the basic fact, though, that Europe is disengaging from Russia. I mean, they, this will be, and this is not long, long term. I mean, they are in the next couple of years, basically will disengage their oil and gas sectors from the over-reliance on Russia. So that will eliminate this geopolitical hammer that Putin had over them. And so that's really, that's a very positive development. Unfortunately, as we've talked about, the you know, the, the fungibility of the oil, et cetera, and the, and the high price of oil and gas now as a result of the war has, hasn't been good for, Putin, for the bottom line that Putin has been able to still get the, uh, the high revenues. Nonetheless, Europe is disengaging. He won't be able to do this anymore. And clearly when he was calculating on Ukraine, he was thinking, oh, well, Europe, there's only so much they can do to me because they're completely reliant on my energy supplies or overly reliant. So that will be gone. So that's a positive. Another positive might be the um, spur to the renewables agenda. I mean, we're looking for a, a, a alternative supplies. Well, one alternative, of course, in the near term must be the fossil fuel substitutes. But in the medium to longer term, it gives a spur to the European Union's very, very ambitious renewable agenda. So, I mean, there's nobody who can doubt at this point, the danger of over-reliance on, on fossil fuels to national security in, in Europe. And so I think that there are some, you know, that this thing, there's something, there's some positive elements out there, but they're not kicking in yet. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that, Colin. I mean, I, it's it's always hard, you know, seeing the, um, you know, the atrocities that are being committed in Ukraine when you hear headlines that say, you know, the war in Ukraine could be a boon for, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, uh, benefit for renewables. Um, but it, it does have that impact, right? There's there's kind of a two-track approach that's going on right now. Renewables have to be part of the solution here, but they can't be deployed fast enough, uh, and I mean literally fast enough in the next several weeks uh, to make up for the shortfall uh, in energy resources that are, are you know, it's building up from Russia's gas cuts uh, to Europe. That's why, you know, in the short term, hydrocarbon swaps are really what Europe is, is trying to do uh, in terms of the contingency it finds itself in today. But that's not to say that there isn't, you know, a, a longer term um, reorientation of energy uh, going on in Europe and, and around the world to, to some extent um, to help build out renewable systems at scale in order to not only make, um, you know, make countries, make democracies more independent of authoritarian, you know, petro-state influence and, um, and, and weaponization, but also to address the climate crisis. And that, and that is really important and something that we have to have on our radar as well. Um, 
And, and, you know, on both of those fronts, you know, given total state control in authoritarian nations like Russia, we see that nearly every sector of society can be weaponized. And of course, energy is part of that, but it's also cyberspace, supply chains, space assets, and things like this. But this is exactly why we need more science and technology analysis that, that can underpin our foreign policy decision-making to, to help that, because you can, you can address the climate crisis and authoritarian threats in you know, great power competition and, and these sort of dynamics all at the same time. Uh, but you really need to have analysis going on that mixes the geopolitical with the science, with the technology, with the economics. Um, and, and I think that Europe can get there. I, I think that the discussion that's going on in terms of Germany's potential decision to extend the life of its last remaining three nuclear power plants, that's really important. You know, the, the idea that has come out to really hyper, you know, hypercharge, if you will, the uh, renewables deployments in the North Sea and the Baltic Sea are incredibly important. Um, that can help out a, a lot. And, uh, you know, ultimately, it's, it's the basic science and technology funding from global democracies that are going to be needed, needed and need to be sustained for years to come um, to have the basic research necessary um, to uh, come up with grid-scale uh, battery storage, to come, come up with and make real future fusion energy technologies and, and things like this that will actually... Uh, address geopolitical concerns associated with energy. There may be new ones, right? Critical minerals uh, very likely uh, would kind of replace hydrocarbons as the geopolitical energy weapon potentially in the future. Uh, but, you know, it becomes, you know, basically, you know, shifts the paradigm to, to some extent and starts to make real what, you know, we in the science community have been saying for many years and almost a throwaway line that, that you know, future energy technologies and, and things like this can address geopolitical concerns. Well, guess what? Now it's 2022, and there's a real demonstration of the the threat that um, you know that an underfunded um, you know energy technology and energy science uh, development path will have. And so we really need to double down on those at the same time that we're taking these immediate contingency steps, right? There's immediate energy security steps and these longer term steps that include renewables that, that have to go on at the same time. And I, I think that's incredibly important uh, for policymakers to remember uh, that they're not making a decision between hydrocarbons and renewables. It's all of the above and, you know, allowing us to end our uh, reliance in the long term on authoritarian hydrocarbons addressing the climate crisis, but also having immediate, um, you know, impacts to build out resiliency and energy security for the short term as we uh, we enter this this heating season in Europe. Yeah, and this is another area of renewables where Putin has ill-served his own country so egregiously because. He has doubled and tripled down on fossil fuels. There's nothing going on of significance in Russia on the alternative energy dimension, the renewable dimension. So when that transition kicks in, and this is a medium term and, and long and you know the next 10, 15, 20 years, Russia is going to be left way behind. And even take Saudi Arabia, they're doing extensive. They have these funds that they're looking for the post-fossil fuel era that they're looking to invest in, whereas Russia is just... Putin just can't conceive of anything beyond the oil gas sector, and he's really leaving the future of Russia hanging out there, and it's not very uh, not very optimistic. But that's typical. He's done this Ukraine war has been a disaster for Russia uh, as much as you as for Ukraine, or almost as much as for Ukraine. 
and the same thing on on the energy sector and how he's approached it. So he's now destroying his markets in Europe as, on the fossil fuel side and doing nothing, looking ahead to the future on the renewable side and all those areas that you just mentioned. So he's a disaster. And I'm sure that you talk about history that he will be viewed. Somebody will be doing the uh, denunciation like Khrushchev did of Stalin of him in a future time, I, I hope, of all the all the detriment that he has brought on Russia. But in the meantime, we have to live through this. As I was kind of looking over the EU's posture, the EU's position on this is strategic patience. They see a lot of these things that we've talked about kicking in. I mean, it's disconcerting that in the short term, actually Putin has more money this year than last from the energy sector. But as for many of the reasons that you and I have touched on in this conversation, the medium term, and and, and that could mean the next year, it doesn't have to be 10 years from now, in the next year, et cetera, it will be changing and the, the effects will change. And so that, that we have to kind of stick with it and they're advocating strategic patience. There's no silver bullet here. Germany, as the case that we've looked at particularly today, you know, put itself in this bind. And there's no and once you lock yourself in a bind, it's you can't just spin out of it immediately. So it's not uh, immediate. But nonetheless, the stage is being set now. I think uh, we just have to stick with it, and that maybe that strategic patience is is the best uh, advice. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I, I get asked this all the time, um, this, this concept of Ukraine fatigue. You hear so much, um, especially over the past few months, from, um, you know, leaders of, of U.S., you know, U.S. leaders, EU leaders, other democracies around the world that, um, and, and it's kind of harped on in the expert community, you know, what, what is this idea of Ukraine fatigue? And, and at what point will our, our electorates simply... Uh, demand that we move on from this issue. And we, we have to remember that we have to be in this for the long term. Ukraine's existential crisis that it's going through right now needs to be won by the West, right? We need to continue to support Ukraine at the levels needed to to win and win back the territory that's been taken by uh, the, the, the Russian Federation and maintain its democratic sovereignty. And, um, you know, that has to continue uh, because that will be the best support for our own national security and our own geopolitical standing in the world um, and, you know, can kind of push back on this broader notion of democratic fatigue or backsliding and things like this uh, across global democracies. But, you know, part of the part of the, um, the truth is that when we talk about sanctions and we talk about um, the measures that we're we're uh, putting forward as global democracies to support Ukraine, that means that democratic leaders need to now come out. And on a fairly regular basis, have these kind of direct-to-camera moments, Colin, where they talk to voters and they, they explain what's going on um, in, in very uh, broad terms of, of why it's so important what we're doing to support basically our own system of uh, liberal democratic norms uh, that is under threat from an authoritarian alternative, to say the least, uh, dictatorial alternative. And, you know, we need to make it clear that these, this is, you know, these sanctions will work. They are working, but they will continue to work and, and become more effective over time. Uh, and we need to stick with them. And so ultimately, that's why, you know, I often say that the uh, these sort of measures need to continue so that the only one in the end that has Ukraine fatigue aren't voters across the West. The only one with Ukraine fatigue at the end of the day needs to be the Putin regime so that they get out of Ukraine and um, 
and so that its uh, illegal war of aggression is over, and that Ukraine can, um, you know, reestablish its sovereignty over the entire human territory. Agreed. I mean, this is an assault on the international rules-based order, and that order actually did serve China well. It got, for the last 30 years, China's moved from a country with high levels of poverty to a mid-middle-income country. It's been an enormous success. You would, I would like to think that they have a stake in a rules-based international order. Most of their trade is with the United States and with the European Union. So there's a lot of energy diplomacy that needs to to try to uh, needs to be deployed to see if we can move things in a better place. The same thing with India. India, we have many commonalities of geopolitics there. At the moment, they're taking advantage of this horrific situation in Ukraine and their ability to get oil at a discount. We do need to engage, and I know we are. I'm sure our, our successors are engaging uh, in that now. But there's a lot of energy diplomacy that needs to be done, because it, it, there is an argument to be made here, even for countries outside of Europe, even ones that are not as South Korea or Japan, you know, allied with the sort of West quote unquote system. Uh, there's an argument across the board. I mean, including in Africa and other countries that are relying on food, where this war is the reason why there's a food crisis, and the war is entirely started by Putin. So don't blame the victim, blame the aggressor. I'm, I'm not saying that China's going to fall in line behind us, but maybe there's marginal ways in which, which we can get them to, to be a little bit better. Maybe there are marginal ways in which India can be a little better. And maybe some of these mid-range effects of the sanctions and the reorientation of U.S. energy companies, et cetera, will, will kick in in the next three, six months and put additional pressure that hopefully will do what, you, what you've outlined, that the pressure will be on the Putin regime and Putin public opinion. So uh, with that, Ben, I think, uh, unless, do, uh, do you have anything else to add to our, uh, to our discussion? Uh, look, we've covered a lot, and uh, that's a lot for the listeners to, to think about for now, but uh, I'm so glad that you're uh, engaging on this, um, this, this podcast series, Colin. It, I think it's so important to hear from, um, from our, our former diplomats, especially those that, that have recently served, um, so that the you know the public understands more about how our foreign policy making takes place and um, understands the importance of uh, you know foreign and national security policy to to our own country. Right. That's um, I think something that is uh, really obvious to folks that live um, in the Washington D.C. metro area. But is uh, you know when I was growing up, I didn't know much at all about the State Department or what diplomats do, and it took uh, actually going there and doing it to learn more about it. So this is why this this sort of uh, series, I think, is so important, and I really thank you for uh, putting it together, Colin. Well, thanks, Ben, and I have to say that it was, it was so much fun working with you, and you're, uh, you've are you got a great attitude and a huge commitment that, that transcends the various jobs you've had, and uh, I certainly admire the dedication that you've had on this issue and just really making making your points and getting out there. So thank you for sharing them with me and with the listeners today on the podcast. It's just, it's been a delight to, to have you on. So thank you. Thank you, Colin. Appreciate it. <laughs>